I'm Christina Gorter. I'm the co-director of the Sir Michael Howard Centre for the History of War at King's College London. I'm also the head of the Air Power Studies Research Group at King's. I'm principally known as an Air Power Specialist, but in my role at King's College London, I work very closely with the military One of the benefits of that is I'm frequently asked to get involved in the so-called lessons process. So Iraq, Afghanistan, and more recently Libya. The Libyan campaign, I think, will come out as one of the most interesting aerial interventions that the West and specifically NATO has done. Although because of the way Libya disintegrated, air power was blamed That is an unfair judgment because the air power element worked extremely well and was a very precise and very carefully crafted air power strategy. Britain has had an awkward relationship in the Middle East and North Africa in many respects. After the Lockerbie bombing, so we're going back to the 1980s here, there was a lot of pressure on Gaddafi's regime to give up those who were responsible. Then you have Britain also engaging in arms sales to Libya. This is where some of the hypocrisy as far as the Libyans and others are concerned comes out. So Britain has been playing a very awkward game in North Africa. But the Libyan campaign per se grew out of concerns about human rights abuses that were happening in North Africa at the time and specifically what Gaddafi's regime was up to. When you had the growth of the so-called Arab Spring, you had the rebel risings, particularly in the east of Libya. The way the regime reacted to that looked as if there was going to be a wholesale massacre in Benghazi, which was becoming the seat of the opposition. And the so-called National Transitional Council, which set itself up as the alternative transitional government. It was at that point that both France and the UK took the lead and decided to act. Given the amount of jaundice about Iraq and Afghanistan, the fact that there was an overwhelming vote in the House of Commons for some type of intervention is extraordinary. The reason why it was an overwhelming vote, so 557 votes to 13, is because people were satisfied that this was going to be an aerial intervention as opposed to a big footprint on the ground. One of the remarkable things about this whole campaign was the extent of international involvement. Not since the Second World War was there such a non-US aerial involvement in a campaign. If you look at the spread of European partners, the Dutch, Belgian, Norwegian and Danish contributions, which were very quick to respond to this challenge. In the Danish case, they provided almost exactly the same level of contribution as the Royal Air Force did in terms of how many attacks they undertook. Also, the fact that Sweden became involved, not a NATO member. So why did Sweden become involved? It's simply this. They wanted to send signals to the Russians, who in previous years, and particularly over the preceding months, had been doing overflights of Stockholm 
that was of concern to Sweden. So they wanted to say, we can be a good partner if you have the requirement for an international response to a crisis like Libya. Therefore, the hope undoubtedly was that if anything serious happened, NATO would come to Sweden's aid. But for me, the most staggering element was the extent of Arab involvement. It was so important for the Arab coalition to come together in support of the UN Security Council Resolution 1973 to deal with Gaddafi. Now, Gaddafi's relationship with the rest of North Africa and Middle East had always been awkward. So if you like, the Arab world was seeing this as a way of dealing with Gaddafi. Although the Arab states, and here we're talking about the Jordanians, UAE and Qatar mainly, contributed probably about 5% of the aerial operations, the main point is that they offered that political support to the aerial intervention. And then subsequently, for instance, you have those nations getting involved in further operations against Islamic State. The situation with the US is a very interesting one because although President Obama was very interested in getting rid of Gaddafi, he didn't get that congressional support for major intervention. So what you saw was the Americans stepping back from the Libyan air campaign at the end of the March 2011 timeframe. But nevertheless, they continued to support behind the scenes. It was utterly vital because what they were providing was almost all the so-called suppression of enemy air defense capability. This is a capability that has been downplayed quite a lot since the end of the Cold War. They provided a lot of the air-to-air -air refueling capacity, and there were other support mechanisms that they provided which were absolutely key. But there was a sense from the Americans that the Europeans hadn't really thought about sustainment of campaigns. So in the UK case, you had a weapon system called Brimstone. 99% of the weapons fired hit their intended targets. In the urban context, very important, given the overriding remit to protect the population. It also had a limited blast effect. Using that weapon system against all the mobile targets, regime, tanks, artillery, and so-called technicals, the heavy machine gun platforms on vehicles, using that weapon system against all that range of targets meant that the stocks of brimstone ran very, very low. We were down to single figures at one point. That led to the Americans, especially the Secretary of Defense, Gates, making a rather jaundiced comment that the Europeans aren't thinking hard enough about how they support expeditionary operations like Libya, and that the Americans always have to backfill and support the Europeans. So that led to some tensions within NATO. But the Americans continued to provide a lot of the intelligence support to the campaign, also those physical support mechanisms, which were absolutely vital. At the time, the air campaign was seen as a great triumph, and it bolstered Prime Minister Cameron's reputation and also President Sarkozy's. But very quickly, after the end of the campaign, you see the disintegration of Libya. 
Now, that happened for a variety of very complex reasons, but principally because Libya has always been divided. It's never formed a state as we would accept it. The tribal dynamics within Libya meant that Gaddafi, when he was in power, was always having to rule with an iron fist. You lift the lid off a lot of that, and unsurprisingly, you get these various tribally-based factions within Libya being very reluctant to relinquish their weapons. Libya was awash with weaponry. You had various militia groups and a sliding scale of jihadi at one end of the spectrum through to some very moderate groups, also having to deal with the former regime elements with retribution management. Because the Libyans didn't want a big Western footprint in Libya, the security situation unsurprisingly got out of control. You had al-Qaeda, particularly in the south of Libya. That has always been a difficult part of Libya, and it was always a security issue, even in Gaddafi's era. Also in the east of the country, around Derna, you had al-Qaeda elements, also the growth of Islamic State. So unsurprisingly, the security situation fell to pieces very rapidly after the end of the air campaign. Many people wondered, would the Libyan intervention present a template for future interventions? This raises the specter of the 2013 timeframe when the Syrian regime was using chemical weapons against its own people. A lot of people expected a similar intervention. But Syria is very different from the Libyan setting for a variety of reasons. When you have the 2013 debates happening about whether the UK should do another intervention, there was great hesitancy because of the way things had developed in Libya. So the impression given by the Libyan experience was you may perform an aerial intervention strategy that deals with the immediate problem, i.e. the regime, but you may be lifting the lid on a very difficult situation. Syria had an even greater spread of factional elements, a sliding scale of Salafist Islamist groups, some moderate, able to work with the West, but others very hardline. Then you also have that overlay of the Kurdish groups wanting their own separate state, including the PKK, which in addition has a Marxist-Leninist bent to it. So which of these groups do you support? That was problematic. That explains NATO's hesitancy to get involved. There was another issue. Syria was a far more capable regime compared with Libya. The Syrians had updated their air defences in the 2006-07 timeframe, including a Chinese radar system against which NATO has never operated so there were concerns about the safety of any NATO-backed aerial intervention. Also those concerns, okay, you deal with the regime, but then what next? That's what led to the decision not to intervene in the Syrian setting in 2013. 